Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, my guest is Claire Richshaw. She's a so- assistant professor of entomology at University of Kentucky. And we're going to talk about uh, bees, bee behavior and pollinating and uh, perhaps some other animals. So, Claire, thanks for coming. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your background. What got you interested in bees and uh, the topics you're researching? So I started out primarily as a behaviorist. So I'm uh, my passion really lies in trying to understand why animals behave the way that they do, how those behaviors come about as a function of their brain, interactions with their environment and their genetic background, but also how those behaviors evolve, how they um, function to improve the survival or uh, reproductive abilities of an organism. And I started really my career in a field called behavioral ecology, which is mostly focused on the evolution of behavior. And that work actually involves spiders. So I spent um, my entire PhD working on a very beautiful uh, web building spider in Florida. Yeah. What did you learn? Okay. What did you learn from that? What was your PhD about? So I was studying body size evolution and reproductive tactics in males. And basically what that means is, you know, you have males that are competing with one another for mate. Usually in this spider, the larger males win fights. But over evolutionary time, we see that there is a lot of diversity in body size maintained in males. So they show actually 
about a threefold range in body size, which is pretty unusual. And so one question I was generally interested is trying to understand how do these little males uh, achieve reproductive success? How are they able to get to females and mate? Um, so I studied different aspects related to that central question using some stage experiments and manipulations and also some uh, behavioral modeling approaches. So when you study animals, uh, is their behavior as nuanced and as complicated as people, just different, or do you think it's uh, simpler? It is um, as nuanced and complicated. I think um, that's a sort of a common misconception that things like insects or spiders are kind of like little robots that just you know, they kind of act on instinct and impulse, but they're actually very sophisticated in terms of their ability to adjust their behavior depending on the environmental context. So they're very sensitive, just like humans are. And so they provide a nice opportunity to study a lot of behaviors in a kind of simplified experimental framework. There are experiments you can do on things like bees that you can't do on humans, but they have a lot of complexity and, and that makes them challenging to study because we can't actually ask them questions. Um, we have to kind of probe their behavior and their motivation a little more indirectly. Yeah, it's funny that there's these trade-offs. I know with people, they may not give you the right info. At least you could ask them, but there's certain things <laughs> obviously you can't do to them. Other creatures like bees, like you said, you can, you know, unfortunately do anything, but they can't tell you, ow, or, you know, I don't like that, or I'm bored. Yeah, it, that's definitely, um, it can be kind of a thrilling challenge, but also frustrating. One of the reasons I've always liked insects is that it kind of feels like you're looking at the world from a different perspective, an organism that doesn't see the world exactly like we do, and trying to imagine being an insect could be pretty interesting, actually. But that was kind of the original appeal for me with insects and, and spiders. But they also do such really um, interesting and unusual behaviors. Despite the fact that their behaviors may seem foreign to us, they follow some of the same general evolutionary principles, general neuroscience principles. So they're at the same time kind of alien, but also familiar to us. Well, tell me about some behaviors, whatever insect or creature you want, that really were like amazed you and you thought were amazingly cool? So one behavior that might seem kind of mundane, but is, is really quite interesting is, is aggression. That's a behavior I've been working on for about the last 10 years in honeybees. Honeybees are aggressive in the context of nest defense. So they defend their, their colony, which is a rich resource of honey and bees, which provide a protein source to predators. They have to defend that nest against predators. And bees actually have a really well-coordinated defensive response. They uh, act collectively when they're attacked by a predator. So a single bee is not going to be able to fend off a large vertebrate like a bear or a skunk or something. You need hundreds of bees to act at the same time. And so bees have evolved special ways to communicate with one another to coordinate that defensive response. And so this is a behavior that's extremely dynamic, very socially sensitive. And one of the puzzles we've been working on is trying to understand exactly how different experiences that the bees, the individual bees have regulate aggressive behavior. Well, so what, so do the, do bees normally show aggressive behavior to each other or just 
again, only when it comes to hive defense. What constitutes their aggression? What do they do? Yeah, that's a great question. So they are aggressive towards one another, but not inside a single colony, typically. There's some exceptions to that. But a colony of bees defends itself against large predator threats like bears, which I mentioned before, but they also have to defend themselves against other honeybees. So believe it or not, one of the main enemies of a honeybee colony is other honeybees coming from nearby colonies. They'll come in and try to steal the honey that's stored inside. These are called robber bees. And so it's actually pretty sophisticated. The honeybee has a couple different types of individuals in the colony that act as defensive specialists. They're kind of specialized for aggression and nest defense. One group of bees called the guards basically monitor the colony entrance and they smell the bees that are coming inside. Mostly these are foragers from their own hive that are going out and collecting food and returning. If the bee identifies a nest mate, which it does using odor cues, it lets that bee through. But if um, the guard identifies a bee from another colony, she'll act aggressively towards that bee and reject her uh, from the hive. So our work, we address kind of both of these contexts for aggression, both that defense against other honeybees and defense against larger predators, which are related behaviors, but have a, a few interesting differences. Well, what behaviors do you see in people that you don't see in any other animal or, or insect? Are there any? Wow, that's an interesting question. You know, people, neuroscientists in particular, spend a lot of time trying to understand, you know, to what degree the inner workings of the human mind are paralleled in other organisms. Usually they're thinking about other types of vertebrates or other types of mammals that are more closely related to us. And so that's a tricky question, but I will say that honeybees and other insects have a surprising behavioral repertoire. So they have really elaborate abilities to learn and remember information. Honeybees, as you may know, can even communicate the location of a food resource to their nestmates using a symbolic dance language. So in, in many ways, they have a cognitive abilities that rival some of the most advanced abilities that humans have. So what, um, I don't know, do any animals have schools or is it more like apprenticeships, I guess? That's what it would be for their young. Oh, Does that model, are there any elements that model like apprenticeships and people? I guess, again, it's not schools, but apprenticeships. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm curious about why you're asking that. Do I, I, you have a specific kind of idea in mind that, that makes you think about that? Well, yeah, I was just thinking about how various creatures raise their young, and I thought, well, all right, people, you know, they put their kids in schools, but animals, it's usually a one-to-one -one raising of their, well, it can be one-to-many if they have a litter, but I guess, you know, they learn by watching and following and doing, so it's kind of like an apprenticeship if I you know, make it, uh, if I anthropomorphize it. So I just wondered in terms of, you know, because you mentioned the bees doing this specialized dance, like where did they learn that from? 
who do they learn that from? And, you know, again, are there any schools for animals? Yeah. So I feel like in your question, there are a couple really interesting ideas. One is this idea that, you know, in humans, we have teachers and educators, we send our children to learn from someone else in a lot of cases. And that's sort of a specialized role in our societies. So there are some kind of interesting parallels in the honeybee society, for example. So for one thing, Honeybee colonies are made up of a a single queen and thousands of what are called worker bees. And the worker bees are all females. They're all the daughters of that single queen. And the workers pretty much do everything required for the colony to function. So they build all of that honeycomb. They collect the food and store it inside. They make sure the nest is tidy. They get rid of dead bees. They defend the colony, all of those things. And one of the things that these uh, worker bees do is nurse their own sisters. So they actually raise the next generation of workers. It's a specialized job inside the colony. And this is unusual because usually in animal systems, animal species, you see that individuals prioritize their own reproduction. So they prioritize having their own offspring and caring for those offspring in some cases. But in social insects, of which bees are, honeybees are one, there are also things like ants you could think about. You actually have the situation where siblings are cooperating with their mother to raise their own sisters. Um, And so that is um, an evolutionary phenomenon associated with uh, something called kin selection. The idea is that by helping your relatives reproduce, you actually do gain some ability to pass your genes on to the next generation. And so um, social insects use that principle to organize their societies. And um, I guess the one other thing I thought of when you asked that question is this issue of division of labor. It's kind of what you were talking about too. So, you know, you might be a journalist and then you send your kids to learn from a teacher. So those are two different jobs, uh, two different sort of labor force types that we have in our society. And it's actually really interesting as societies get larger, there tends to be more and more division of labor where the tasks are divided into finer, kind of finer roles and pieces. And that pattern is true in insects as well as humans, um, which is uh, really pretty interesting. So some of the organizing features of insect societies do resemble uh, human societies to a degree. So yeah, I always wondered, you know, a, a cow when it's born, within seconds of being born, it can stand up and walk around and nurse, you know, and a, a whale from seconds after it's born, it's swimming and it's able to nurse and, you know, a human baby can grasp and cry. And so I wonder in animals, what is instinct and what's just passed off as, ah, oh, it's just instinct and what is actual learned behavior and cognition? Yeah. So learned behavior is typically thought of as behavior that's modified through the course of an animal's life by external factors. So an innate or innate behavior or an instinct would be something that requires no experience for the animal to be able to perform that behavior. It doesn't mean that they perform it the second they pop out of their egg or womb, but it means that it's not something that requires an experiential or, or learning component. Some people think of that as, as a behavior that's based solely on, let's say, the organism's genetic makeup. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. However, we do know now that almost every behavior is a function of both the genetic makeup as well as the um, environmental inputs that that animal experiences during its lifetime. Um, But that's still a a bit distinct from learning. And so there are various behaviors that show um, learning 
features where um, some type of experience allows the individual to perform the behavior. So in bees, a good example is um, learning to associate certain odor cues or smells with um, a food reward. This ability allows bees to adjust their foraging efforts, which flowers they visit, and pick ones that are going to provide a food reward. So that's uh, been shown to be a learned behavior because you can change it. So if you take those bees, put them in a laboratory context, um, you can actually train them to associate different types of odors, even ones they may never encounter in nature with a sugar reward and they'll behave accordingly. Yeah, I guess, you know, just like dogs, you could train them to find explosives and things like that, drugs. You could probably train bees to do the same thing, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if, if uh, I'm sure that's been considered on some level. Um, you know, one of the things that we have as an advantage with dogs is that they're very social with us, right? So they respond to our, our cues. Um, we can, we sort of understand their motivations and some of their motivations are social in nature. So they, they do things sometimes for, you know, really for the social reward. Praise, for example. We don't have the same control over insects, I don't think, although we do understand some of their motivations. For example, food is a motivating factor for insects as well as something like a dog. What about cognition? How far, I'm going to call it down, does cognition go? You know, do bees have some level? Do insects have some level? Do you think bacteria have some level of it? Yeah, so it really depends on how you define the term cognition. So this ability to take in and process information from your environment and use that information to change something about your character, whether it's your behavior or growth rate or whatever else, most organisms have some ability to do that type of processing. There are also certain things that we call cognitive abilities. Those are kind of more specific to animals and learning. And in some cases, you know, people like to rank animals in terms of their various cognitive abilities. But learning and memory are a couple examples of cognitive abilities. Uh, being able to count symbolic language, these all fall under the category of different cognitive abilities. So some of this depends on whether you view life as being you know, you view life in terms of its similarities, or if you view life on the planet in terms of its differences. And, you know, there, there's no kind of wrong way to do it. I personally find it really interesting to see the similarities between um, something like a honeybee and a person. Other people are more focused on what makes them distinct. But in terms of certain cognitive abilities, like the ability to count, facial recognition, symbolic language, insects have evidence of several of these cognitive abilities. So what other experiments have you done on bees that uh, were really were very revealing to you or just surprising? So one of the kind of interesting relationships that we discovered by accident, and by we, I mean not only my group, but also some other members of the honeybee research co uh, community, is that um, there's often a positive relationship between aggressive behavior and health in the honeybee. This is not always true, but we found this pattern is um, fairly consistent across a lot of different contexts. So what I mean by that is that colonies that exhibit greater levels of defensiveness in response to a predator or a simulated predator attack tend to show what I would call health resilience features. So for example, we've shown that those more defensive or aggressive colonies have fewer parasitic mites infesting the colony. They, we've also shown that individuals that are more aggressive are more tolerant of pesticides, actually more likely to survive a pesticide exposure. 
other labs have shown that more aggressive colonies often have greater foraging activity. They store more honey. In some cases, they have better ability to survive the winter. So it's an interesting relationship between aggression and health in the honeybee. And in a recent study, um, we actually found evidence that a low aggression bee sort of resembles a sick individual. They're not actively fighting an infection, but their immune system is um, appears as if they are sick. So it's as if they have uh, sort of a weaker constitution such that if they get hit with some other stressor like a virus or something like that, they're less likely to be able to fend it off. So it's really interesting to see that on sort of a physiological level, there's a, a connection between the um, physiological features of a low aggression bee and a bee that is more prone to illness. That was that was interesting and surprising. Yeah, that is that is strange. Other insects that you worked on, you said you worked on spiders. Was there anything that they did that was uh, especially cool or different? Uh, yeah, and I, someone's going to want to point this out that insects aren't actually, or spiders aren't actually insects, they're arachnids. So I'll go ahead and just give that caveat. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. No, I know. In normal sort of parlance, people, I mean, we call them all bugs, basically. That's fine with me, but I don't want your listeners to get upset. Yeah, so the spiders I studied were interesting for a number of reasons. And spiders, in general, are really cool creatures. I I could go on all day about spiders. Um, They were sort of my first real love and passion in, in the sense that they did such interesting things. So one of the things that's kind of interesting about the spider I studied is that males actually have a very limited reproductive potential in this species. So usually in animals, we think of males as having kind of the more expendable gametes. So gametes are sperm or egg, and males typically make way more sperm than females make eggs. And for that reason, they have kind of a different set of pressures on them from an evolutionary perspective. The way that they approach mating and reproduction can be very different from females. But one of the things that was really exceptional about this spider species we studied is that they actually a very limited amount of sperm that they produce. When spiders mate, it's actually kind of unusual. The the male builds a little web, he'll ejaculate onto it, and then draw that um, sperm into these paired structures that are modified mouth parts called pedipalps. So males walk around with basically carrying their sperm in what look like little boxing gloves around their face. When they mate with the female, they insert their pedipalp and, and mate with her. And um, in the spider I studied, when the males run out of sperm in those pedipalps, they they can no longer produce it. And with a collaborator in um, Germany, we actually found that the uh, testes, male testes disintegrate over time, over adulthood, as if the male is sort of kind of living on borrowed time as he's searching around for mates, um, which was really interesting. And related species in that same group of spiders actually break off their pedipalps they serve as mating plugs. So they're, um, they, they break them off inside the female when they're mating, and then she's not able to remate any longer, which may be one, you know, a piece of evidence that this phenomenon in these males is actually an adaptation. They, they have limited sperm, but they're able to prevent other males from mating with the female that they mated with originally. So that's just one example in the spiders of kind of unusual characteristics that make them really interesting to study from a standpoint of how behaviors evolve. Yeah, that's crazy. So in that situation, the pedipop breaks off and the female can never mate again with someone else or does it dissolve over time? 
Um, it depends on the species, but there is some evidence that that might be a, a permanent state. Yeah, there are like little pieces that are inside the female herself, so such that they don't necessarily become dislodged very easily. There are examples uh, of the other kind of phenomenon you're talking about in other types of insects and then also in other animal species too, where it's sort of a temporary blocking of, of other males' abilities to mate. And it was one of the things that was interesting about the spider species that I studied was that, you know, females retained the ability to remate. In fact, we found that when the female was just about to lay her eggs, which in, in spiders can take a while, um, it takes about a month in this species for females to actually develop the eggs inside her body before she lays them. And right before she laid eggs, she became very attractive again to males, where a lot of males would show up on her web and try to mate with her. And so what we actually found is that when the males mate that, if they mate a second time, but if it's right before the point where she lays eggs, they actually fertilize more of those eggs than if they mated with that female when she was a virgin. So it seems like there are different strategies to achieve higher levels of offspring production if you're males, but there isn't sort of one single best strategy. Wait, so those females, if they mate at that time, they'll, what, there'll be multiple fathers for their progeny or what will happen? Yeah, exactly. So we looked at the paternity of the clutches of eggs that the females laid. So we actually used genetic markers to determine which male was the father. And what we found is that if the male mates second, but if he mates with this female who's just about to lay eggs, he fathers something like 80% of her offspring. Um, if he mated second right after the first male, he barely gets anything. And so, yes, there are cases where you have a single clutch of offspring, a single sort of spider egg case, and multiple fathers will sire the offspring there. Is there any choice? Like, you know, I know, I think in bees, they have like the spermatheca and they can hold sperm for a long time for multiple partners. I just wonder if there's any choice in, based on outside conditions or environmental conditions that they're somehow able to select, oh, this male sperm, let's let's unify that with my eggs and produce progeny from that person, you know, from that, that father versus another. Or do they just produce progeny that's mixed each time? Like, what have you observed? In that particular species, it's unknown whether females are able to bias sperm usage of stored sperm, like you're suggesting. There is some evidence of that in other species. But yeah, we don't we don't have evidence of that, but it's it's certainly possible. There are other ways that females can also bias sperm use. For example, well, one kind of like grizzly fun spider example is that um, females can choose to eat their mates. And in some cases, they will eat the male before they're finished inseminating the female. And if they do that, then less sperm is transferred to the female and that male doesn't father as many offspring. So she has some control over the sperm kind of trans transmission and storage process in addition to potentially being able to control the fertilization process like you're suggesting. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. That's crazy. Bees, <laughs> since you have different phenotype, you know, workers and queen, etc. You know, what behaviors do they share and then what behaviors do they have that's unique to each type of, uh, you know, of bee? So within a, a honeybee colony, you have essentially three types of bees, uh, two types of females and one type of male. The females are quite distinct, actually. And it's really, it's pretty interesting and surprising to a lot of people that whether or not a female bee develops into a queen, I should say a female honeybee, depends on the type of nutrition she receives during development. So any female, 
can develop into a queen. And uh, but because of the way that the nursing activity works, there's only one queen per colony. And these queens, because of their differences in nutrition, that activates all of these different mechanisms and pathways in their bodies. And when they emerge as adults, they're very distinct from the workers. So they're, they have these very long abdomens, which are filled with large ovaries that produce a lot of eggs. That's probably the biggest difference because the queen is responsible for laying all of the workers and most of the drones in the colony. So in that sense, the queens are the only ones that are able to produce female offspring. Um, interestingly, workers, which have smaller bodies and kind of more reduced ovaries, they are able to lay drone eggs, male eggs, and that is one form of reproduction available to them, even though the workers never mate with a male in their lifetime. And the reason that that's possible is because males actually develop from unfertilized eggs in bees. So they don't require sperm. And for that reason, sometimes workers are able to lay them. So that's one kind of overlap between queens and workers. If you look at other parts of their body, for example, their stingers are very different too. Workers have these, these stingers with barbs and recurved spines. So when they stick into something like your skin, it rips the stinger out of the worker's abdomen along with a venom sac. And that doesn't happen in all bees, but it happens in honeybees. And you can actually see the venom sac pumping venom into your hand or something whenever you get stung. So the queen, though, also has a stinger, but it's, it has a very different morphology. It doesn't have those spines. So she's able to sting and sting again if she wants. She doesn't die every time she stings, like uh, a worker bee will die once she stings something. And queens use their stinger sometimes in contests with other queens. There are cases where queens have to compete with other queens for control of the colony. And in those cases, the queens can use their stingers. So those are a couple examples, but they are quite quite different in their body structure. Yeah, but you said males, they don't need sperm. They're, they're from unfertilized eggs. So, that's, so the males will be, what, limited within a, within a particular colony. But once they're produced and they mate, I mean, they're, well, I guess they're flying out and they're mating with another queen or a new queen, not their existing queen, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't finish up there with the males. So males are called drones in a honeybee colony, and they are produced typically by the queen, but the workers can also produce them. They fly out of the hive in search of other virgin queens. So they don't mate with their mother or their sisters. Uh, this is a difficult concept for students to get straight, I've found. So they go out, mate with virgin queens. When a drone mates, uh, kind of like the spider story, they actually lose their genitalia and it, it forms a plug in the females and the drone dies. If a drone fails to mate, he'll return back to his home hive and he can hang out there. Uh, as far as we know, the worker or the drones don't do any of the actual labor inside the colony. The worker bees will provide them food and that kind of thing. Towards the end of the season, when it's starting to get cooler out, the workers will remove any remaining drones. So they'll actually pull them out of the hive because they can't, uh, they have to conserve energy and can't really afford to continue to feed the drones at that time. So where do you, I mean, do you think all this behavior is genetic or, you know, it, it has to be learned somehow, somewhere? I mean, how could genes carry uh, behaviors and how could that be? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a million dollar question. If we can answer that, you know, well, I don't know if anyone would give me any sort of prize, but they probably should. Yeah. So 
you kind of asked a couple questions in one. Some of what I've described is sort of genetically programmed in the sense that there is a developmental program that usually involves the activity of genes that communicate with one another. They may be stimulated um, in their activity by hormone systems, external factors. All of these pieces work together to guide the development of an organism, right? So that's you know why you get, if you have a certain genetic complement, you get a female bee, a queen or a worker. If you have another genetic complement, that is to say in honeybees, half the chromosomes, and there's a particular locus that's involved in sex determination like humans. Um, but if you get that genetic complement, you get a male. So in some senses, those uh, developmental programs are more or less set by the kind of uh, blueprint that DNA offers. But there's also a lot of variation too. And getting to your question of how genes regulate behavior, it's a very difficult one. So most behaviors are influenced or regulated by many different genes. The other thing that you might realize is that genes have different actions at different time points of your life. Um, and so they may be involved in guiding development of the brain, but that brain structure may be set for life. And therefore an experience that impacts how that gene works early in life may have an effect later in life, even though that gene may no longer be um, playing, you know, a clear active role in the process. And so when we think about how genes regulate behavior, you kind of have to think about the activity of the gene, how it leads to changes in things like tissue structure and function, and how all of those pieces are interacting with information from the environment. So, you know, as you may know, and some of your listeners may know, genes are, you know, pieces of what's called DNA. They encode proteins. It's the protein that actually does something in the organism. The protein may be a building block of a tissue. It may be um, a receptor that's involved in neurotransmission. So there are a lot of different bits and pieces of the organism that can be altered by a change in genetic sequence and either through a process of development or kind of ongoing interaction with stimuli in the environment, those genes can guide variation in behavior. Yeah, it just seems, uh, I would think that all these creatures have memories and the memory would extend, I don't know if, uh, if a lot of their behavior is instinctual, would you say that they acquire additional instinctual memory over their lifetime that's passed down, that's heritable? Yeah, so... Some of their behavior, like, so let's take, you know, aggressive behavior as an example. You can think about that behavior in a few different ways. The sequence of events associated with an aggressive response, let's say flying at an, an object that has a dark furry texture, you know, harassing around the eyes of a mammal, something like biting the skin or stinging the individual. That's a sequence of events that might be genetically encoded. You might think of it as instinctual, but whether or not the insect displays that sequence of events is very flexible. So that's where learning or experience can modulate that quote unquote instinct, if that makes sense. Um, so just because a bee can sting doesn't mean it always does. For example, if you um, encounter a bee that's on a flower collecting nectar, um, usually those bees are not very defensive. That bee is not going to try to attack you or bother you. But if you encountered that bee at its nest, it may very well try to attack you. 
Um, and so that sequence of behaviors is activated by a stimulus in the environment. But the context is very important. Am I at my nest or am I out in someone's backyard? And so uh, I think what you're asking is important, which is, you know, we have these kind of sequences of behaviors that seem to be innate, pretty predictable, but then there's also a learning component or experiential component on top of that. So what, what questions are you trying to answer at this point? You know, what are some of the deep, big ones that you're working on? So one of the big questions that I have been thinking about for a long time is why and how do animals integrate multiple experiences over their lifetime to impact their behavior? So to give you a kind of human-ish example, humans have go through uh, various experiences throughout their lives, sometimes things like traumas that have lifelong effects on their behavior such that even if they get new information about their environment, they have a very difficult time letting go of the previous experience and then responding to the new environment. You know, that's a subject of great interest to psychiatry and psychology. Other animals have kind of a similar set of issues. They may respond to their developmental environment. They may even inherit information from their parents about the parents' environment that impacts their behavior. And they continue to learn and experience things throughout adulthood. Somehow, the animal has to integrate or combine that information. It has to perhaps ignore certain pieces of information. Other pieces will stick for longer periods of time or shorter. So one question is, is how that all works. And one of the reasons why that question is interesting to me is that you have to remember here that presumably these behaviors, a particular behavioral characteristic is subject to um, evolutionary selection pressures. So it's in theory adaptive in some way, it serves some benefit to the organism. And one sort of major puzzle in biology is to understand you know, how these very dynamic traits like behaviors, how do they evolve? How do they respond adaptively to the environment? And how does that information get encoded somehow in a heritable way in the organism? So that's a, an a area of interest. And one of the things we're trying to do is figure out if certain experiences activate particular genomic mechanisms in the organism that lead to more permanent or less permanent effects on behavior. Uh, so for example, many people are familiar with this concept called epigenetics, where certain experiences can cause chemical modifications to the DNA. And those chemical modifications alter how the DNA behaves and in turn how the organism behaves. So one question is, if you have a experience that induces those chemical modifications, is that always more permanent? Or are there cases where that experience is still reversible, despite the fact that you're using that same mechanism? So are there kind of general principles we can look for in predicting why certain experiences have lasting effects on behavior and others have more ephemeral or reversible effects? What kind of experimentation do you think would shed light on this? I mean, it seems like, a, how do you figure this out? Yeah, it's a super complicated uh, process and question. So one of the things that we're taking advantage of in the honeybee is the fact that it's possible to use social manipulations to alter certain aspects of their physiology, of their genome regulation in their brain, but not others. So we can do certain social manipulations where we change the behaviors that the worker bees express, and then we can examine how an experience alters 
that behavior, but also gene expression properties in the brain, these chemical modifications I'm talking about, and other physiological processes like hormone signaling that may also be responsible for entraining that experience. So a lot of it boils down to putting organisms in different social manipulations and then evaluating how those manipulations impact both behavior and then certain physiological measures. In our case, we're especially interested in measuring gene expression, which is a property of the genome, but it's dynamic. So you're not measuring the gene sequences in the DNA, but you're measuring how those uh, sequences are activated or deactivated by certain environmental stimuli. Well, very good. Claire, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? So they can visit my website, which is clarachoff.com. They can also find me at the UK Department of Entomology website, and I am happy to respond to any questions via email. My address is is available at both places. Okay. Well, very good. Claire, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, the stuff you're working on is super interesting, and I know it's uh, there's tons of nuance in it, but... Uh... Yeah, really good stuff. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I hope it's accessible to your listenership. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.